The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. And welcome to Our Wild World. Today we have a very special guest, Ian Redman, a man whose career has had much impact on my own outlook and work, and who has taught so many that conservation cannot operate in a vacuum, that when studying one species in particular, one must also need to look at entire ecosystems down to its myriad individuals to better understand the interconnectedness between all life. Welcome to Our Wild World, Ian. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a, it's a pleasure. So we we have quite a bit of information to cover today. You have a multi-varied and layered background, um, starting with your work with Diane Fossey and the gorillas. Then you became a conservation consultant and advisor for organizations such as the Born Free Foundation, the Gorilla Organization, Orangutan Foundation, Wildlife Line, and the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And you encourage such groups to work together. You established the, uh, and chair the Ape Alliance the African Ellie Fund and the UK Rhino Group, and you are now Chief Consultant for GRASP, uh, which is a UNEP-UNESCO Great Ape Survival Partnership that you helped to launch in 2001. Perhaps, just to get started, you could give us a brief little um, overview of this journey to getting to this place, then I'll jump in with some questions. Well, as you said, it's quite a long journey. Uh, I, I guess I got lucky uh, when I was at university uh, I used to enjoy uh, organizing talks for the Biology Society, rather like you enjoy inviting people onto your show, because you get to meet interesting people. And uh, one of the people I met was Sandy Harcourt, who was then writing up his PhD, having spent two years uh, studying gorillas with Diane Fossey. Uh, he's now a professor in uh, California at uh, UC Davis. But uh, Sandy gave me Diane's address and gave me some advice, and I wrote one of those hopeful letters that undergraduates write saying, please, can I come and help? I said, I'd mend the roof or make the tea or whatever you wanted. And uh, to my surprise, about six months later, Diane wrote back and said, if you can get here, we'll try you. <laughs> <laughs> I did, and it was fun, and was haven't, haven't been able to keep up since then. <laughs> wow, that, that's, that's amazing. So um, you worked with Diane in... Uh she was in Rwanda or Uganda? Yes. Yeah, uh, she was in, on the Rwanda side. I mean, the, the Virunga volcanoes is divided between three countries. Um, 
but it's one conservation area and there's strong collaboration. There's even now a formal transboundary agreement between the three countries to uh, ensure that this amazing area is protected. It's a World Heritage Site, so it is considered to be of outstanding universal value to everyone. And that's why it's so difficult when you see the surrounding region engulfed by civil war and genocide and all the human problems that obviously affect the ability to conserve the gorillas. Absolutely. And I think one of the most extraordinary reasons for hope in this often very bleak picture that the conservation portrays to the world is that in such an area, there are so many dedicated people, Rwandan, Congolese, Ugandan, and from many other countries around the world, collaborating together to ensure that the gorillas do survive. And, and the result of that, extraordinarily, is that mountain gorillas are the only kind of ape that are known to be increasing in numbers. Every year there are a few more than the year before. And as we know with almost every other endangered species, that ain't the case. That's incredible. So um, th- we're talking about the Parc National de Volcan, which is... That, that's on the Rwanda side, yes. Okay. And there's the Virunga Park, Parc National de Virunga, on the... Uh, the DRC side, the Democratic okay. Republic of Congo. And then in Uganda, their sector uh, is called the Mugahinga, uh, Gorilla, uh, National, Mugahinga National Park. And then uh, just a little bit north of that is the other mountain gorilla habitat called the Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. That's almost entirely in Uganda. So two conservation areas, each one just a few hundred square miles, each one with uh, between three and 400, uh, now just over 400 uh, in, in Virunga, uh, gorillas, and that's the total population of mountain gorillas. And yet, despite all the problems in the area, their numbers are beginning to recover. It's an incredible, I mean, going back to some of the work in the, the organizations that you've collaborated, collaborated with, consulted with, and helped to organize to make something like this area, this gr- mountain gorilla habitat work between transnational uh, governments, uh, park rangers, languages, they speak different languages, and pulling it all together. So with Diane, your work was originally research-based, and then you shifted to conservation after poachers killed one of your research subjects, in, um, a young silverback named Digit. Without bringing up too many bad memories, um, what, and, and from a personal and professional sense, what was it about Digit's death that... Um, created that shift in you? Oh, well... I know it's a, t- uh, a tough question. Yeah. My, um, my work with Diane, I, w- I was a research assistant, which translates as dog's body. Right. <laughs> the gopher. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever needs doing, Ian had to go for it. Um, so I was doing all kinds of things, but the daily work was generally going out and collecting records on the gorilla's behavior and movements and... Um, the sort of the hatched, matched, and dispatched department, any births or changes of um, allegiance between members in different groups. So you're keeping up with the, the study groups. They're the gorillas that are completely comfortable with human observers. Now, at that time, in the, in the 70s, there was no tourism. So the concept of humans going and sitting amongst a family of gorillas and being accepted almost as a, an honorary member of the family was very little known that uh, there had been one National Geographic documentary called Search for the Great Apes, which was half about Diane's work and half about Biruta Galdikas, who was doing similar work with orangutans. And it was just not very well known. And, and now, of course, anyone can go on holiday to 
uh, any of the guerrilla range states and try to see guerrillas, but the easiest place to go and see them for the longest has been the Virunga volcanoes and, and Bwindi in Uganda. Uh, so at that time, it was extraordinary what we were doing, but we didn't really see it as being that extraordinary because it wasn't really until you come out of that isolated little community in the forest and talk to other people and show them pictures that their jaws hit the floor and you kind of get the sense of how extraordinary it is. It still is, even though uh, anyone can go on holidays and spend an hour just a few yards from a family of gorillas and not be torn limb from limb or any of the things that people would have presumed would have happened before that. It is, um, abs- it, it is absolutely extraordinary, and I hope our listeners understand that uh, Ian was one of the forerunners, along with Diane Fossey and, let's say, Jane Goodall and um, Birgit, who works with the orangutans, to make such an experience possible to... Uh, spend time with gorillas, what we call habituate, um, so that they, as you said, don't tear us limb for limb. They don't take us as strangers or invaders. And to be able to do this and have this experience, to spend an hour with gorillas, um, it's an astonishing accomplishment. And here we are talking to one of the very few men who was around at that time and uh, was a forerunner and started this whole thing. It's just just astounding to me. I can't tell you how exciting it is to, to have you on well, my show. I, I, I stress that I, I was Diane's assistant and was not the architect of it. Um, and, and I helped uh, with the starting of the guerrilla tourism, but that was primarily the initiative of Bill Weber and Amy Vedder. Um, so that many other people involved. Um, but you're, you're right to stress the extraordinary nature. And what makes it really special, I think, is that it depends on, on trust, mutual trust. The gorilla has to trust you, a human being, that you're not going to do what almost every other human being that every gorilla throughout history has ever done when they've met, and that is attack or, or send a, a deadly projectile in the direction of the gorilla. And you as a human have to trust that that gorilla isn't going to tear you limb from limb or do any of the dramatic things which gorillas do when attacked do. So th- this was, I think, Diane's gift to the world. Uh, not the, the the book that that was very loosely turned into a movie. Not the um, scientific papers or, or the research center that she set up. But but simply the the method that the and once it's been done, that knowledge of how to win the confidence of a family of wild gorillas. And and I, I've even tried extending the. the Fossey method or the Karasoki method because Karasoki was a research center that Diane started and others had a hand in developing the method so maybe the Karasoki method would be a, a more um, appropriate title but that method I've, I've uh, tried using it on elephants and does it and, work? well it, it's, it's facing the same sort of problems that people initially faced with guerrilla tourism everyone else who hasn't experienced it thinks you're going to die something very bad is going to happen um, and so because elephants are so large and, and every so often someone does get killed by an elephant and obviously that's a, a tragedy for their family and their friends and all those who are affected by such accidents but the elephants concerned are very often stressed because of the presence of the human and where I've been um, when I, where I started off a system which is continuing today uh, with elephants was it, it's not yet being done for tourism on a regular basis but I think it has that potential that's on, on Mount Elgin um, so if you think of a, a map of Africa and you've got Uganda 
um, just near Lake Victoria. On the bottom left-hand corner, the southwest corner of Uganda, is the Virungas, where the mountain gorillas live. And the bottom right-hand corner, the southeast, is Mount Elgin, which is another extinct volcano associated with a rift valley that runs through Africa. And on the Kenya side of Mount Elgin, there are elephants that do something truly extraordinary. Uh, they go deep underground into the dark zone of caves, and they mine rock. They use their tusks like chisels and picks, and they prise off and chip off bits of rock, and they eat the rock because it has minerals that they need for their general health. And these elephants, um, this is what I, I you know, how, do you, how do you move on when you've, you've stopped working with gorillas? Well, you never <laughs> stop working with gorillas for a start. Um, but in terms of finding another research topic to look at, um, I s stumbled across the underground elephants of Mount Elgin, one of the least well-known and most extraordinary phenomena in nature. And those elephants um, became the subject of a study in the early 80s. And then in the mid to late 80s, the price of ivory went up to such an extent that even those fairly worn down, stumpy little tusks that the miners have because of all that scraping rock um, became worth killing for. Mm. And it was, for me, a, a second personal tragedy. Ten years after that mutual trust that I had with Digit, who Diane had watched grow up from infancy. She'd known him for 10 years. I'd known him for just over a year. And we both had to deal with our grief when he was killed because someone wanted to buy a gorilla skull and a pair of hands. Uh, with the elephants, 10 years later, I was standing beside the body of a young elephant. I was pretty sure it was Charles, a young bull I'd photographed deep in the back of Kitam Cave. And he'd had his face sliced off because someone somewhere in the world wanted to buy an ivory bangle or an ivory hanko or some, some thing made out of an elephant's tooth. And really, the first time that happened, it, it changed the nature of work at Karisoki, changed Diane's focus and my focus. And the, the delight of studying the elephants was that it was just research. Once again, I was just in a forest, satisfying my curiosity as a naturalist, looking at these amazing beings, I would, I would say, elephants are. Um, you know, we're human beings, gorillas are gorilla beings, elephants are elephant beings. And... We can discuss if you want the, the well, rationale I'm, for calling them beings. But. Well, I would like to because this is a common thread throughout your work, which has had a great impression on my work and the way I go about doing conservation. Um, so we've got a, a few minutes until our first break. And what I'd like to highlight is that this is a, a theme throughout your work, that in, uh, animals are individuals, especially in tourism or whatever. We look at it and it's like, oh, it's a lion. Uh, oh, it's an impala or, oh, it's an elephant or a gorilla. That these animals, um, mammals, fellow beings, earthlings, have personalities. They are individuals. They are a part of their family and their ecosystem. So when we get back from the break, we've got a couple minutes. But yes, I would like you to expand on that, why you call them beings and that they are individuals. Well, okay. Specifically, I would use the word, the term being for someone who has self-awareness, someone who can see him or herself in the social context that they operate uh, and perhaps have theory of mind and see themselves from another person's point of view within that group. And we, we are pretty excited by the fact that we've learned that the other apes, um, Western and Eastern gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, Borneans, Sumatran orangutans, the other six species of great ape 
all seem to pass the mirror self-recognition test or the ability to um, think that that individual in the mirror is me, not just another of my species. Uh, it's more difficult with, with elephants, but it's also more interesting with elephants and even more so with cetaceans because if you look at our evolutionary history, you can say, well, gorillas are like us um, in many other ways, so it's not that surprising that they share some of our cognitive capacities. But elephants have evolved by a totally different route and, and cetaceans, whales and dolphins, uh, yet more different route and yet they share certain things in common. They have long lives, which means that there are grandparents and great-grandparents in the society. They have large brains with a big convoluted forebrain, which gives them co cognitive powers. And they live in a complex society where the ability to judge what you're doing in, in that social context gives you an evolutionary advantage, gives you a selective advantage. So, so th those skills will be passed on. So it seems that in at least three groups of mammals, self-awareness and, and the, uh, the term being has evolved. Now, some people might say, well, my cat's a being. He understands or she understands a lot of what I do, and, and that's debatable. But certainly with the large-brained, long-lived social mammals, I think we can call them non-human beings. I like that. And, and it, it, it brings up, we've got about two minutes till our break, it brings up huge impacts for science today um, that detached, dispassionate view of the animal world where you're just looking and saying it's data and applying behavior to lifestyles. Oh, he's not playing. He's, he's practicing to be an adult in his society. Um, so that this, this concept of non-human beings, self-awareness, self-recognition, evolutionary advantage, and um, complex societies has a huge effect on how today we treat wildlife and we treat okay scientific subjects i just happened to watch um well actually i won't get into that right now we've got 30 seconds to the break so let's just go to the break and we'll come back because this is going to be an intriguing conversation so if people would like to call in you can call in at 866-472-5788 we're speaking with ian redman who has a, an incredible background working with gorillas elephants and forming several conservation groups or you you can email me at wildeyes, W-I-L-D-I-Z-E, at wildeyes.org. And we'll be right back after the break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. 
Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. We're with Ian Redmond, and I understand we have a caller, Barbara. Um, hello, Barbara. Hi, Ellie. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. So you have a question for uh, Ian or myself? Yeah, I'm just really excited to hear what Ian is talking about, about the beingness of animals and the individuality, the conversation that's been happening. And... Um, when I was in science some years ago, it, it, it was considered anthropomorphic to say, to talk about any um, individual characteristics of animals or emotions, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm wondering um, is, if that's changing now in the scientific community, that people are really opening up to understanding the animals as emotional, sentient uh, beings and and um, making a shift. Uh, good like question, to, Barbara. Yeah, Ian, I'd like <laughs> uh, you to address that. Science, of course, is a broad church, if that's the right term, broad laboratory. Uh, the, uh, there are scientists who are still very afraid of being accused of anthropomorphism. And if by anthropomorphism you mean interpreting animal behavior using human cultural values or, or um, attitudes, then I would agree that anthropomorphism of that nature is, is likely to lead you to the wrong conclusion. Whereas what I think more scientists are prepared to do is to recognize that there are individual differences in, an, in a group, you know, individuals between a group, in a group of animals, and that, that we have to recognize that otherwise our, our data isn't going to be accurate. Uh, so I think the pendulum has swung, but it shouldn't swing too far because the danger is that people will um, interpret it as they would from their own particular cultural background. And it's hard enough to transfer a, an interpretation of someone's behavior just between two humans from different cultural backgrounds, let alone different species with all the differences that that's involved. Um, but what I like to think of is, is that w rather than anthropomorphizing animals, we should more zoomorphize humans. <laughs> that is, recognize that we have a lot of our behavior that comes with the hindbrain, with the, the long evolutionary history, or, or I guess if you think it was God who created us, he created us to, to resemble animals in so many ways. And it's not respecting that that leads to the problem. 
And I think respect is, is the word I would choose to use when asking people to consider individual animals and their differences and their needs. Because if you talk about animal rights, immediately you divide the room. There'll be some people who think, yes, we should confer rights upon animals the same as we do with any uh, human being and other people who would be adamantly opposed to that because the conferring of rights they think is something that only humans can do to other humans. Well, we're humans. We can do it to whoever or whatever we want. Um, but I, I would put that discussion on one side because I think if enough people learn to respect animals and their abilities and their differences, but also the similarities, the things that we share, then the rights will almost happen as a matter of course because enough humans will say, you know, we respect these other creatures, perhaps we should change our behavior. Because it isn't that we're giving rights to the animals so that they can change their behavior. The purpose of conferring rights on an animal is to change human behavior. And I think we can do that better by respecting them. I think you make an absolute um, uh, poignant point there, Ian. Um, Barbara, did, are you still there? I'm here. Okay, I was wondering if, if you had another question. No, no, no. I'm, that was that was really wonderful, and I'm, I I thank you so much for the great work you're doing and the insights. I think it's really important right now. Thank you, Barbara. Thanks for so calling. Thank you. Thank you. So Barbara is one of our dedicated listeners. Um, she's also a. a a veterinarian um, and does uh, animal communication, interspecies communication. So I can see why she was very interested in hearing your perspective on this. But I think your point of respect and um, zoomorphism is really, really important. And I, I write a lot about this on my blogs and my Facebook posts and my tweets and our wild world that it is humanity that needs to have a paradigm shift that we are not the end all and be all of what creation is. And I was watching um, a wildlife show the other night that was highlighting uh, different animals and I realized every species has an aspect that is that you can find in humans. You've got those that come out fighting, uh, like the Tasmanian devil, and fight their whole life. Then you've got those that work to just get along, mostly elephants or sometimes the apes. And then you've got chimpanzees who um, are close to us DNA-wise and have a society similar to humans that go to war, find tools, but um, that that shift in humanity needs to happen in order to respect animals for what they are. Yes. Um, I was in a workshop um, in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo a few weeks ago, and it was to launch a, a bushmeat project in four countries, um, and this was the, the, the DRC arm, um, f- funded by the Global Environment Facility through the Food and Agriculture Organization of the, World Bank, uh, of the, of the United Nations, and, and all the, the big agencies were there. And I made the observation that although the workshop theme was wildlife management. Um, actually, it's not the wildlife that needs managing. They'll just get on fine. It's the humans that need managing. So how do we change human behavior? And for most of the people in the room, this was like a revelation. Ah, yes, of course. <laughs> it's the people that we have to change the behavior of because the wildlife will carry on doing what it does given half a chance and be a part of its ecosystem. And uh, I think it's it's perhaps easier if you've worked with great apes or, or animals that, that 
are so like us in their anatomy that some of their mannerisms and expressions are the same as ours. It's more difficult with elephants or whales and dolphins because they are anatomically so different. But if you see that, um, well, as Jane Goodall has put it, it's through a window. You can go through the window into their world through a species that's similar to us and then realize that perhaps we could go further through that window and, and start to understand things from other species' points of view. And that's taking theory of mind beyond the norm. Um, as I said, it's, it's hard enough to see people from a different cultural background's point of view, let alone a different species' background. But if you can step back and be objective and be totally scientific about it, I'm not asking people to abandon science. On the contrary, I think science that ignores that component is not complete. I'd, I'd agree with that 100%. Um, so it, it, is, it is a revelation for people today to think of um, what we were just talking about, to think of animals as um, living, breathing beings, not necessarily all of them. Maybe an impala is, is not the same as a gorilla or an elephant. An elephant seems to be a nation unto itself that may forever be hidden from us, but we can certainly, by studying them and watching them, and as you did with the cave elephants, understand that they have complex societies. And as you said, a complex society requires some sort of ethics, some sort of morality, some sort of um, sentient understanding of how to get along. And I'd say what we're trying to do today in in shifting the model of conservation to incorporate the work that you've been highlighting is going to be the hardest part uh, of, of what conservation has to face. How do you change, let's take ivory and China and rhino horn and Vietnam and Asia. How do you go about, how do we, not you personally, but um, what would you be your perspective? How do we go about changing the human behavior to respect animals for who they are as opposed to just what they can give us like two teeth or a hand uh, education has to be has to be education uh, because I think what the, the only thing that really changes human behavior uh, from the inside you can have behavioral changes imposed on you from the outside but then you resist and, and try find ways around the rule of law or whatever it is that's causing you to change your behavior from the outside but from the inside i think the key term is enlightened self-interest okay you suddenly realize that actually in the long term it's in my or my communities or my families or my kids best interests for me to change my behavior now so that something can happen better in the future and the trouble is speaking of ivory well i know that when i started studying elephants in the um early 80s, in the UK uh, and across America and in Canada and, and ar around the world, ivory was just a normal thing you bought in jewellery shops. It was just there. You could get home shopping catalogues and there were ivory earrings and ivory bangles and people just thought of it as a rock. It's just a white shiny stuff that makes a nice bangle. And then during the 80s, the ivory was the ivory trade, the killing of elephants for that ivory trade was so bad and the, the exposés of groups like the Environmental Investigation Agency and the Ellie Friends campaign in the UK, um, lots of organizations campaigned to have an international ban on ivory through, through CITES, this UN Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, and the ban came in. But in some countries, that message didn't really get through. 
And what's happening now is just as it was 25, 30 years ago in, in other parts of the world, the growing middle class in, in China and other Southeast Asian nations, they're, they're having more disposable income, the, their standard of living is going up. The, the things that traditionally they would have sought to buy as a status symbol to show that they've made it, they're, they're going somewhere in life that they want to have on the mantelpiece to, for their friends to comment on, traditionally that would have been an ivory carving. And so the demand for ivory is going through the roof. And so one very positive thing that, that I think people might be interested to know is, is a, a filmmaker I have worked with for the past few years, uh, Steve Taylor. He's set up an Indiegogo uh, appeal which would fund the, the completing of a film that he's partway through making on the ivory trade in the Congo Basin. Uh, but most importantly, he's now working with a, a Chinese filmmaker with a view to making a version in Mandarin and in Cantonese so that both in, in Hong Kong and mainland China people will see this and realize that what they're paying for when they buy a piece of ivory is murder, uh, organized crime, smuggling, things that the, that the average householder would not want to be associated with. But that's where the money is going, because although there's a little bit of illegal ivory from the stockpiles that were legally sold to China a few years ago, um, the amount of ivory on sale in China is huge. And it's, it's driving the killing of elephants. So the same with any other wildlife product that suddenly has a huge boom in demand. Wild populations cannot cope with that kind of commercial boom. It might look good on the profit sheets, but, but you're going to very quickly run out of the substance. And in the case of a substance that comes from an intelligent social mammal, there are other ethical considerations too. So it's a, it's a complicated issue, but, but I think showing people how their behavior affects the people and, and animals on the other side of the world is a very good way of getting them to change that behavior or to demand legislation that changes that behavior or to demand companies that it's in their commercial interests to change that behavior because otherwise they'll lose the business or they'll lose a vote or, or worst of all, we'll all lose because the species concerned will disappear. And then there's the effect that the disappearance of those species will have on the ecosystems, the parts they, they play in keeping our world alive, which we depend on for survival. In terms of education, Wild Eyes made a short film, funded a short film called The Elephant in the Room. I don't know if you've seen it, which is a... Um, yes, I have. It's very yeah, powerful. A 60-second version of taking it from the ivory carving back to the elephant and that film is showing in Shanghai Square now on the outdoor big screen it's gone around the world and we're making some other versions but you're absolutely correct um, a lot of Asia uh, when we talked to people said oh it's you know we were always told they they were just teeth and they grew back um, so making that connection between one live being and another live being, and as, as you so well put and stated, that it's connected to uh, black market, uh, criminal gangs, um, killing of people, the poachers on the ground uh, who are just used like fodder. When one's gone, they just hire somebody else, and they're doing the dirty work to fund um, 
uh, some corporations or some government's bottom profit line. And it's what I talk about a lot. We have to change what I call our benchmark of what we define as health and wealth as from something that fattens our wallet to something that uh, fattens our lives, our, our, our health, our world that we all depend upon. Um, so in, in one of your tweets, I read an article on change.org about the illegal burnings in Indonesia that was destroying hundreds of orangutans and hectares of forest. The court's decision seemed to be influenced by the more than 10,000 emails they received showing support for the environment and revoking of permits by the companies performing the illegal burning. So this is a, a, a couple-part question. Why do you think the community support was effective in this situation in persuading the courts when it is not in so many other situations? Oh, that's a hard one to answer. Um, yeah, I do have I it on very a... good authority that, that when people um, email or write to the Indonesian embassy or to the Minister of Forestry in Indonesia uh, or, or other ministers, because often the, the Minister of Forestry wants to keep the, the land forest, it's the Minister of Agriculture that wants to convert it to um, profitable crops. Um, but I am told that they print out and file each letter and communication. And when the pile, the pile of files is big enough, it really does have an impact. So, so that's a, an encouragement to all those of you who have ever been moved to buy a postage stamp and send a real letter, care of the embassy of that, the country that you're concerned about, saying... This matters to me, even though I haven't been there. And if you want me to go there, keep your biodiversity because that's what will draw me there and spend my money in your country. So those are very powerful tools that every individual can, uh, can utilize. Uh, but we can also you know, go the legislative route and talk to our elective representative uh, because if they don't know our views, how can you expect them to represent them? <laughs> Exactly. So this is why I asked that question, because a lot of people we get through email, Facebook, whatever, we're, we spend so much time, virtual time online reading about these issues and, you know, the, the vitriol that gets spewed about um, what should be done. But uh, I don't often find people taking the time to sign the petition. So what I'm, I guess we're getting at here is for our listeners it does count. It does matter. It is a way you can make a difference by signing a petition. Um, it does eventually get to the ears of someone who can do something about it, our representatives or the legislators in the countries of uh, the species that you care about. Um, so in terms of your formidable career, Ian, from field research with Diane Fossey and contributing to documentaries with Sir David Attenborough to working with the United Nations, much of this is glamorous, yet I'm sure there was untold hours of hard work and sometimes in relative isolation. On a personal level, what have been some of the most enjoyable and simply fun experiences you've had? <sighs> Um, I guess what really motivates me is is the fun that I get, and it is it is fun. I, I make no bones about it. Uh, of course, I'm I'm fascinated and, and want to um, learn from a scientific perspective, but it's that um, being in in a natural habitat somewhere and observing something which just wows you. And it isn't always to do with gorillas and elephants. It can be, I mean, I was just talking to a friend over lunch um, who was wondering what they could get for their children. Who, who the, the, the kids they were talking about 
hated it when insects flew anywhere near them and they they always wanted to kill the flying insect. And I said, just, I reached into my pocket and pulled out the little hand lens and I said, show them the insect through a little hand lens, get them up close on on the finger or in a little box because when you see insects or other invertebrates up close, they are amazing. And so um, it's it's a sense of wonder. And and I think it's that sense of wonder, whether it's from a very tiny thing, a nematode swimming through the the liquid in a microscope slide is beautiful. And yet most people only see nematodes as nasty worms you take an antelmintic to kill. And I'm not suggesting everyone should cultivate worms in their gut because um, they can be uncomfortable. And, um, but, but there is beauty in, in, in even the most apparently insignificant organism. Um, so if I was going to put it into a, a nutshell, it would be life forms, different life forms, and, and how they interact with each other and with us um, is what excites me. And I've had the good fortune to interact with some extraordinary life forms in um, different parts of the world. So that's, that's, that's the buzz. Well, I'd say that is excellent advice, and that's um, what I always tell people is get out there and interact with the world, see how it connects. So we're going to head into a short break again right now. Once again, if you'd like to call in, you can call 818-866-472-5788 or email at wildize at wildeyes.org, and we'll be right back. Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. 
are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're with Ian Redmond talking about oh, um, the beingness of other animals and the beingness of humans. And I had, we had uh, ended before the break with Ian discussing um, how he gets people to become engaged, uh, education. And uh, we had to stop in the middle of one of Ian's thoughts. And we also have a couple of email questions. So, Ian, if you'd like to continue with your thought, then I'd like to bring in these two email questions. Well, thank you. I, I did just want to mention two very exciting things that are coming soon to a screen near you. Um, one of them is uh, last year I had the pleasure of traveling with an Australian film crew and an American um, zoologist presenter called Holly Carroll uh, making a, a feature-length documentary for cinema release about all six species of non-human great ape. Uh, it was going to be called The Last of the Great Apes, but I just heard it might just be called Great Apes in 3D because this was the, the difference between any other documentary I worked on. The, the film crew had the smallest 3D rig in the world and we were getting into remote parts of uh, the Congo Basin rainforest to film Western lowland gorillas, Eastern lowland gorillas, mountain gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, and then they went on to Sumatra and Borneo to do both kinds of orangutans. So that's going to be exciting because oh, when you're very. in a cinema and you've got the 3D glasses on and the apes are kind of reaching out towards you, <laughs> I think that's going to blow people away. So, oh, so they that's going to be get, wonderful. Get some of that sense of wonder that well, you I'll, get when you meet apes. I'll definitely um, keep that, um, that thought alive in posts and tweets and keep my eye well, out for its a, release. Just go to lastofthegreatapes.com. Com and you can pledge that you're going to go and see the film and that maybe will you know harangue your local cinema. Make sure they get that film into your cinema because we want to reach as many people as possible through that means. Um, but on a more a smaller and more easily um, available basis, even if you can't get to a cinema screen, because of course in a lot of the world there aren't cinema screens, there aren't even TV uh, reception. But but you can if you can get the internet. There is a new website which I'm helping um, develop, uh, which is developing a concept called virtual ecotourism. Now, this creates a dichotomy in me because I want people to go outside, not sit glued to a blooming computer screen. But assuming that a lot of the world is spending a chunk of their time looking at a computer screen, how do you make that experience so exciting and immersive that they feel like they've actually been to this location rather than just seeing a little video in a box in the corner of their screen there. An American writer and and philanthropist called Mark Laxer Uh in a book called The Monkey Bible, which he wrote to explore the line between human and animals and the the evolution debate and to inform both sides of that evolution creation debate. Uh, So The Monkey Bible is is a a fun read, uh, very educational, but one of the characters in that uh, book talks about virtual ecotourism and Mark decided to try and make it happen. So we're working with um, a a small team of people who are developing the software to enable you to, using panos, I don't know if you've come across panos, that's Mm -hmm. short for spherical panoramic photographs. 
Right. So not just the bit of the scene that the photographer wants you to see. You photograph all around, over and above and underneath, and then you can turn around and look around you. Now, this if you're is, in a sorry, this I'm is a fasc- away. no. This is a fascinating discussion because I was just talking about this with Guillaume Bon, who is um, uh, writes for Vanity Fair and is starting a new project on elephants, picking up where um, um, uh, Peter Beard left off. And he said mm-hmm. the exact same thing that when you're watching television, you're seeing what the camera is pointed at. Where if you turned it five feet to the left or the right or up or down, you would see mm. a completely different scene. And sometimes those scenes are just as beautiful as the wildlife or the scene you're watching. Other times it's the poverty and the despair that um, is being left out of the full picture. Yes. Well, so what I, um, we're trying to do with, with virtual ecotourism, and, and the, the website there is vico, vecotourism.org, through Vico Tours, we hope that people will feel like they've visited a place. They've looked around it themselves. When you're in a pano using your arrows on your computer keyboard to move left and right and up and down, if you've got headphones on and, and the sound of that location is playing to you, it does feel like you're there. But it is a still photograph. So what this we're is doing, incredible. Vico. What we're doing is, is, is embedding little videos into the, the still panoramic photograph so that when there's something interesting like a gorilla or a scientist or someone they'll they'll you know, click on them and, and up comes a video with a little interview or some behavior uh so it's it's, it's very exciting it's still at, at not quite ready to launch yet and i hope that the vico tour vicotourism.org website doesn't crash if lots of people go there but <laughs> we're, we're about to do some trials of a a, a tour of sumatra where last year i i was in a little pocket of forest in the Trepa swamps. This has become a very famous area because it's being destroyed as we speak. It continues to be destroyed despite legal attempts to block the apparently dodgy permits that were given to convert the forest to palm oil. It's on peat swamp. It's supposed to be protected, but it isn't being protected. And we went into a little pocket of forest because the Indonesian conservationists that I was with, they're, they're trying to identify individual orangutans that are likely to be killed if they stray into the palm oil plantations that now surround them um, as crop raiding pests because they might destroy the palm trees uh, looking for food. And we didn't find the orangutan that the uh, Anton was looking for, but we did find a nest right in one of the last trees there looking out over oil palm. So I climbed up to the nest and did a pano from the orangutan's point of view. So when you look down, you see the nest. When you look out, you see palm oil, palm oil, palm oil, and then a couple of trees, and then more palm oil. And it was, to my mind, the best way of showing to people what it felt like to be an orangutan waking up in the morning. And this was an adult male. We didn't see him, but I was told he was an adult male, cheek pad male orangutan. But when he was a little lad swinging in the trees with his mum, that was all forest. And now it's all oil palm plantations to produce palm oil that every one of us uses in our shampoo and our biscuits and our ice cream. And we're paying for that destruction because so far there hasn't been enough public pressure and commercial pressure to have a certification scheme that says, okay, this palm oil is from a well-managed plantation that hasn't just replaced a rainforest. And that's what we're pushing for in the palm oil campaigning business. We can't say ban palm oil. It's in everything. It's in your fuel tanks as a biofuel. 
but we're paying a price for that, and that's destroying the very rainforests, which are not only habitat for the orangutan, but as you said earlier, are part of the life support system of the planet. They're taking the carbon from the uh, atmosphere, they push water vapor into the stratosphere. They're essential to life on Earth. Absolutely. So this has been a fabulous, fabulous conversation. We've gone into areas I didn't know we were going to go into, and I am so thrilled that we did because we've we received – haven't got too many um, of your list of questions, though, have we? <laughs> uh, well, I, I got two comments, and I'd like you to hear them from mm. our email. One is from uh, Mar- uh, Francis Morania Lewis. And he says, let Ian Redmond know I am in great admiration of him. He's doing great work from the heart. And then we got another comment for you from, um, uh, he says, uh, Ian Redmond, I am with you. I am native. And you took the words right out of my mouth. So I think our discussion today of this episode of Our Wild World has struck a chord with many of our listeners. And that is my goal um, in having people like you who have experiences and have something to say that will benefit all of us and help change that our behavior, the human behavior and how we look at the world. And I think our conversation today really touched on that and, and like I said, struck a chord with many people. So it's going to be interesting to see um, the discussions that come out of this from on the discussion groups at LinkedIn. We post our uh, episodes on LinkedIn. We post them on Facebook and we Twitter them. So I think we're going to get a lot of people tuning in to hear what this was all about. And it's been such a pleasure having you here today. So I have uh, we have a few minutes left and I guess I'm going to lead to one last question question is um uh where is that it's like okay what is the most important point you would like our audience to take away today from this conversation cool um okay the take a message individuals matter and whether that individual is a human who has the power to uh, write to someone uh, uh, the head of a company, the, their elected representative, or an individual who can chip in. I, I, I tweeted this morning. I said, uh, if you're going to have coffee with friends or have a drink in the pub tonight, the price of a round of drinks, if you've considered sending the price of a round of drinks to an appeal on a subject that matters to you, I was thinking about this elephant uh, film, which we, we have to make. We have to get it out to, to the people in uh, China so that they're better informed. Uh, so individuals matter, and each listener who's listening to this has more power than they perhaps knew, and, and today with, with modern technology, more so than ever before in history. Uh, but that individuals also matter when we're talking about populations of, of animals. Uh, that, that The fact that I knew Digit, you asked me early on in the conversation about Digit, yes, finding Digit's body with his head cut off and his hands cut off was, at that time, as a young guy, just fresh in the field, it was the worst thing that had happened to me in my life. Um, but, uh, and that motivates me to want to protect other gorillas that I know, but, but the fact that a gorilla happens to know Ian Redmond shouldn't be a criterion for his or her survival. Mm. They, they have their own reasons for existing within their own society, and they play a very important role in the ecology of Africa's forests, and we will be the poorer, both ecologically, economically, and ethically, if we can't turn around the decline in apes and elephants and other species that, that help to keep our planet habitable for all of us. And that is the absolute go of goal of our wild world is to let, to help enable people to understand that they matter, that uh, what they care about matters and that 
each of us can make a difference and have an effect on our wild world, on the world that we're living in. And that, as you just said, each time we go about um, not listening, not using our education, not using our brains, not using the tools we have to uh, continue the destruction of our very life source and the life source of every other living being on this planet, we are all the worse for it. And it's, it's, is it a world that we want to live in? What kind of planet do we want to have? Do we want to have a rich, healthy, vibrant planet with rich health enriched by, I mean, um, in, internally, not wallets, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. If we turn around the way we behave and act on this planet by educating um, those that are doing much damage, uh, such as elephants, ivory, and rhino horn, to those that are just not paying attention, continuing to use plastic, plastic as an example, um, or plastic bags, and not changing our behavior and thinking that it's someone else's job, then uh, we've lost the plot. So I hope everyone today had uh, a good time listening and joining us with Ian Redman. Ian, I thank you so much for a fabulous conversation. And perhaps uh, we can have you back when uh, Vico Tourism is online and uh, talk about the elephant film. I look forward to that. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you again for joining Our Wild World. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.